could ever, in their wildest imagination, believe that we would have made it here to the 34th Canto of Inferno. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast that's slow, and I mean slow, walks through Dante's masterwork comedy. And we have been at Inferno. We've been chewing on this bone longer than Ugolino's chewed on Ruggieri. I mean, we have really let this thing have it. But we've come to the bottom. And we are at the final revelation of Inferno. So much to say about this last canto. We're going to be here for several episodes. If you want to see this translation, print it off, make comments. If you want to drop comments to me, keep it for yourself. Do anything. You can find it on my website, markscarbro.com, or go to walkingwithdante.com. It all goes to the same place. And if you're just dropping into the podcast here... Well, gee whiz, you might want to think about backing up a bit, but hey, you can come to the bottom with us and find us at the very climax of Inferno. Canto 34, lines 1 through 27. Vexilla regis prodiunt inferni right in front of us. Look straight out there, my master said, and see if you can check him out. As when a great fog exhales around you, or when our hemisphere is all night, a windmill may appear to be turning far out on the horizon, so I now seem to see just such a structure. Then, because of the wind, I took shelter behind my master, because there was no other cave to tuck inside. I was now, and I shudder to even put this into verse, at the place where the shades were fully covered up, showing through like bits of straw through a pane of glass. Some were lying flat out, some standing straight up, one with his head on top, another with his feet on top, and others bent like bows, their faces to their toes. And when we'd finally walked far enough, it pleased my master to show me the creature who had once appeared so beautiful. He stepped aside and brought me to a stop. Behold this, he said, and behold the place where you must steal yourself with all your internal fortitude. How frozen and faint-hearted I became at that moment. Don't ask me, reader. I can't write it down, because every known word would still not be enough. I didn't drop dead, but I certainly didn't remain alive. Think for yourself, if you've got enough imagination, what I'd become, both dead and alive at once. We have come to the bottom of hell, and we have seen, yes, dis, as Virgil calls him, or, as you and I might say, Satan. We have seen the prince of darkness, and here he is, like a windmill on the horizon, and then we get close to him, and now we know what's making the wind. Well, at least we know it must come from him. We still don't know in this passage exactly how he's making that wind. Ah, That's ahead of us, but we've seen him. 
This is Satan, the center of the universe. I want to start there at Satan and then back up and back through the passage again, including that crazy Latin bit that Virgil starts out with. Then I want to talk about Satan himself again in terms of how he fits inside that passage and finally end up with a poet or the pilgrim, both alive and dead at the same moment. Yes, as I've said, this is Satan. We have finally come to him, and it might surprise you that we found him here. He is at the center of the universe. Now, you don't exactly yet know how he's at the center of the universe. We're going to have to save that for a future episode. But for right now, you know that the very center of the universe is Satan. Think about this. We're in a Ptolemaic universe. The Earth is the center of the universe. Everything else rotates around the Earth. This is not a flat Earth. This is a spherical Earth. We'll talk much more about that in Canto 34. We're at the midpoint of the whole universe, and there we find this. Satan. What does that tell us? First of all, this is the farthest point from God. Think about how the universe is structured. Earth, then all the planets. The sun is counted as a planet. The moon is counted as a planet. All the planets, they're all on their spheres. They're circling around the Earth. And way above that are the heavens where God lives. This is the farthest point from God. But the universe is centered on Satan. Surely that colors your outlook of the universe, no matter what you think of God. We know, because we know about Dante's cosmology, that the universe is in motion, which means that we have come to the center of the earth, which means we have come to the one still spot In the universe, the heavens are spinning on their spheres. In Paradiso, we'll find out the angels are spinning those spheres, including the sphere of all the fixed stars. It's all spinning around the earth. The universe is in motion. And yet we come to the very center of non-motion. This should also clue us in. For Dante, movement is good And what do I want to say? Stationariness? Does it make sense? There's no English word. You know, non-movement, non-motion is bad. Think that through for a minute. Let that settle in your brain. Motion is good. Something that is stationary, that lacks motion, then is bad. That says two things to us. One, good is in process, good is in motion, so bad is an absence. It's an absence of motion, but bad itself is a lack or an absence. This is very important because for Dante, good is being. Evil is non-being. Evil is a lack, and good's being is expressed in motion. So we have come to the still point which holds Satan. 
which means that you cannot ever say the devil made me do it. <laughs> you can't say that in Dante's theology because here's the devil way down here at the center of everything and, as we'll find out, immobile. It's not the devil's fault. The devil didn't make you do anything. In fact, no demon in Dante's theology can make you do anything. You do what you do. Now, just stop and think about that for a minute. Think about the radical theology that's running along behind that. It's always your fault. Now, I know some of you, maybe lapsed Catholics, are going to say, oh, my God, there's that Catholic theology where it's always my fault. But, hey, stop. This is the node of the Renaissance. Choice. My individual will determines the actions around me, and my individual will determines the ethics of my actions. If I move with the universe, I am good. Now I'm putting it in Dantean terms. If I don't, if I'm static, if I'm stuck, then I'm suddenly becoming less and less like the creation itself. Think how many of the damned have been stuck. Francesca, not stuck blowing around. Why? Because love is as close to God as you can get, or let me put it in infernal words, lust is as close to a virtue as you can get. That's why they're way up there, near the top. Lust is as close to the virtues as you can get because it's an expression of love. And what does Francesca say? We talked about it endlessly when we had her on the podcast. (laughs) See if she were a guest on the podcast. We had her on the podcast. She keeps saying, love made me do it. And yes, I made a big deal about confusing love with lust, but that's because Dante confuses them. And that's because lust is so close to a virtue. When we get to purgatory, we'll find out that the lustful are at the very top of purgatory. Oh, we'll find out that the homosexuals are right before the Garden of Eden. But that's all to come. Right now, let's just say, you can't say, the devil made me do it. Let's start back at the beginning, at line one of Canto 34, with Virgil's very strange Latin line, Vexilla regis prodeunt inferni, right in front of us. Virgil is quoting a hymn written by Venantius Fortunatus, who lived between 535 Common Era and 600 Common Era. This is a hymn about the advancement of the cross. The cross is a vexilla, a standard. So the standard of the king advances, vexilla regis prodeunt, and in this poem, which becomes a church hymn, what's advancing as the standard is the cross. What Virgil adds, or what Dante adds, is that last word, inferni. What he says is, vexila regis prodeunt inferni, the banners of the king of hell advance. The standards of the king of hell, the standard as in the standard bearer, the the flag bearer, the standards of the king inferni of hell advance in front of us. Virgil is twisting 
a Latin, very Christian hymn here. By Dante's day, this hymn in its Christian version, not in Virgil's weird infernal inflection, but this hymn was sung at Vespers during Lent, the evening service during Lent. And remember, this journey starts out on Maundy Thursday when Dante wakes up in the dark woods. So we're sort of in the Lenten season still. So Virgil's quote here is a signal for Vespers, the end of the day. He's signaling the end of the journey across hell, but he's doing it by perverting a hymn and adding the word inferni to it. There's a couple more questions here that are interesting to ask. Why doesn't Virgil speak Latin? (laughs) Just think about that for a minute. The Aeneid's written in Latin, right? Virgil wrote in Latin, right? Why does Virgil not speak Latin? He speaks the Lombard dialect, but he doesn't speak Latin. Curious. Shouldn't Virgil always have been speaking Latin all along? And when we get to this first line of the 34th canto, I always think to myself, hmm, here's Virgil speaking Latin, which he probably should have been speaking all along in comedy. But Dante wants to write it in the common tongue. And so he's twisted Virgil until Virgil speaks in the Lombardy dialect, even though the actual speech of Virgil in comedy is in the Tuscan dialect. We just know from other members and characters of hell that Virgil is speaking in the Lombard dialect. What is Virgil doing with this hymn? Is he praising the king of hell? Vexi la regis prodeunt inferni. Is he praising his own king? Virgil's damned after all. Or is he parodying Christ? If so, that's an even harder question. Is he making fun of Christ by parodying this Latin hymn sung during Lent? What is is Virgil doing here? And I don't have a good answer to it. I have thought about comedy a long time, and I will confess to you that I come down on every side of this issue, that Virgil is praising his own king, that Virgil is parodying a Christian hymn, that Virgil is signaling a Vespers moment at the end of the infernal journey. It has bedeviled commentators for centuries. What is going on here? And especially such a beautifully austere hymn about the cross as the standard of the Christian church marching forward, especially here, given this infernal twist, bizarre. Speaking of Latin, there are seven Latin words or Latin moments in Inferno. We haven't really looked at any of them except the first one. Remember when Dante is falling down that slope from the three beasts? Dante sees this figure arise out of the mist, Virgil, and Dante says, Miserere, save me, have mercy on me. And remember, I made this big deal that the first words out of the pilgrim's mouth in a poem written in the common tongue or in Latin, Miserere. Well, there have been other instances of Latin words being dropped into the text. And you know what? Here's what's so strange. There are seven of them. 
seven. That's such a number of perfection. There are seven times a Latin word is dropped in Inferno. You want to know what else is strange? The last canto of Purgatorio starts with a Latin line. There is a poet who is clearly in love with structure, clearly in love with numerology, and clearly in love with the notion that Latin dropped seven times. That can't be a mistake, right? Seven times, seven times in a Christian poem, seven days of creation, that number of perfections, seven. It's got to be planned out in some way for some purpose to show us the perfection of Dante's poetry, to show us the architecture, because one of the ways that artists show you the perfection of their work is to show you the architecture of their work, to show you the exact way the work is put together. Witness the Sistine Chapel, in which you basically see the architecture of Michelangelo's achievement in the Sistine Chapel. I don't just mean the way the Sistine Chapel is built, but the way that the painting itself is architectural, the fresco itself is architectural. I mean the way that architecture is foregrounded, structure is put in front of us. Great artists tend to be very much in love with their structure. Is that what's going on here? Seven words, last lines, blah, blah, blah. If so, why is Virgil then saying this line, twisting a Christian hymn, praising his own leader, Satan, praising or parodying Christ? What is he doing? I don't know, so I'm going to pass on. As when a great fog exhales around you, the passage says, or when our hemisphere is all night. See, Dante knows about a spherical Earth. We'll talk more about that in episodes ahead. A windmill may appear to be turning far out on the horizon. So I now seem to see just such a structure. Notice our first vision of Satan is as an edifice, as a structure, not as a living, breathing being. Remember, as we approached Cocytus, Dante the Pilgrim thought that the giants were towers, as in medieval cities. And now we come to yet another giant, clearly this gigantic figure of Satan. We'll find out how big in a future passage. This gigantic fixture of Satan, who is an edifice, a structure. That seems really important for us to realize that he is there. He's turning, you already hear it, like a windmill. We'll find out more about what this means in a future passage. So he's turning, but the motion's not going anywhere. He's just there turning like a windmill on the far horizon, robbed of personality, robbed of what we would consider a core of being. Being. That is the ability to self-express. Instead, just like scaffolding. That's a good way to say it. Now I seem to see scaffolding ahead of me. And so the pilgrim takes shelter behind Virgil. I'm not even going to touch the corporeality problem there. I'm just going to drop it and move on. I was now, and I shudder to even put this into verse at the place where the shades were fully covered up. It is impossible to separate the pilgrim from the poet. 
they are starting to fuse into one thing here at the bottom of hell. Wow, stop. Just think of the ramifications. The pilgrim is becoming the poet. Not so the poet is standing out there commenting on the pilgrim, but they're fusing into a single entity at the center of the universe, which holds Satan. And what he's scared to express is this. They've come to a place where the shades were fully covered up. They've come to a place where the damned are inside the ice, showing through, as the passage says, like bits of straw through a pane of glass. I mean, they are walking across the damned, fully frozen in the ice. This is a place of unbelievable silence. We have now come to this place where there's not ringing noises, cries. No one can say anything. Instead, they're frozen and we're walking over them. This is as nightmarish as it could get. It's also very much like the neutrals. Remember the neutrals way up at the top of hell. Remember those people running around after the banner? Whoop! Think about the banner here. Vexila regis prodeunt inferni. Remember those people running around after the faceless banners and they're being stung by wasps and there's muck all over the ground and they were the neutrals, the people who didn't choose to be anything good or bad and so it says they were neither alive nor dead. (laughs) How does this passage end? Where does the pilgrim get to? There are echoes inside the last canto of Inferno with the neutrals. There we never really saw any of the damned. Here, I can tell you, they're frozen in the ice. We're not going to talk to any of them. We're not even going to really know who any of these frozen into the ice are. Just there's, we didn't know who any of those neutrals were, except maybe whoever made the great refusal, who, as you know, I think is Pontius Pilate. Other people think is a pope. There's all kinds of questions who this is, or maybe Esau. The anonymity there is reflected in the anonymity here, except back there with the neutrals, it was all shouting and noise and loud. Here it's silent. When we'd finally walked far enough, the passage goes on, it pleased my master to show me the creature who had once appeared so beautiful. This is the Lucifer of biblical tradition, Christian tradition. Christian scribes attributed a passage out of Isaiah about the son of the morning to be about the fall of Lucifer or the chief archangel, the chief seraph. This is not necessarily part of Judaistic thought. We'll talk more about Satan in Judaism and then into Christianity in a future episode of this podcast. But there, again, we have this figure in Isaiah, probably a monarch, a local fertile crescent monarch who the prophet is making reference to. But again, Christian theologians interpreted this as a larger passage about Lucifer, the beautiful son of the morning who falls because he wants to be like God. So here, the creature had once been so beautiful. 
He steps aside, Virgil does, to show the pilgrim this creature. He brings the pilgrim to a dead stop. Think how many times Virgil has pushed the pilgrim on. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Think about what happens right now. The pilgrim comes to a stop. What did I just tell you about motion as goodness? What did I just tell you about no motion as badness? Think about Virgil is forcing the pilgrim to stop walking. (laughs) This passage is loaded with irony. It is so complicated, the 34th Canto of Inferno. The poet is throwing everything at us at once. He brings the pilgrim to a stop and says, behold this. What he says in the medieval Tuscan is ecodite, behold this, which ecodite reminds us of ecce homo, the phrase said of Jesus before his crucifixion when Pilate brings him out, behold the man, This is, again, some kind of infernal Easter crucifixion reference turned on its head. Ecco dite, dis, the name of the city, remember, back on the walls of dis with Medusa. Remember when they got stopped at the walls of dis? It's both the place and it is the name from Virgil's Aeneid of the king of the underworld or here, Lucifer. Virgil uses the word he would know, dis, or in the Florentine, dite, he uses the word that he would know to describe the emperor of evil. I am using the Christian word, Lucifer, or Satan, to describe this person, this thing, this being, this structure, like a windmill here down at the bottom of everything. How frozen and faint-hearted I became at that moment, the pilgrim and the poet both say. Don't ask me, reader. I can't write it down because every known word would still not be enough. Faint-hearted, frozen at that moment, frozen like the landscape around him. He has become in tune with the world around him. He's at a dead halt. He's staring at Satan. They're on an ice sheet. He's frozen in place. Virgil has stopped him. Oh, so much is going on right here. I didn't drop dead, but I certainly didn't remain alive. So he's like Brancatoria and Brother Alborigo. Remember when they violated the guest-host relationship? Their souls dropped out of their bodies so that their bodies continued, you know, alive up on Earth, but their souls fell down into cockatus onto the ice. He's kind of like they were. There's a way in which they and he are in resonance with each other. There's so much strangeness going on here. Think for yourself the passage ends. If you've got enough imagination, what I'd become, both dead and alive at once. This last line, both dead and alive at once, line 27 of Canto 34, is a huge interpretive problem. Let me just stop and explicate it a little bit. What does this mean? I didn't drop dead, but I didn't remain alive. I became both dead and alive at once. Let me give you four different ways that critics, thinkers, dantistas have interpreted this line. Well, three ways, and then let me give you what I think. But 
I'm not going to advance mine as the right reading. It's what I think about the line, but many more eminent Dantistas than I have thought of the thing. So, one, he does have the language and he does go on. So we have an interpretive problem here. He says, I don't know how to write this down because every known word would still not be enough. Yet he writes it down and yet he does go on. We have reached, according to some Dantistas, the moment of ultimate irony. There is language to explain this. You're using it right here. There is a journey ahead of us. You're not at a dead halt. We have come to the place of full irony. Now, this is important because the irony will slowly evaporate out of the poem over the course of Purgatorio and then be gone in Paradiso. Others say Dante is passing through death a la Easter. Dante, like Christ, is in fact dying, except Jesus died and rose again. Dante is in some middle state, but like Paul, St. Paul says, you must, to be a good Christian, put off the old man and put on the new man. You must join the new life. The This is the moment in which Dante does this, in which the old man is put away and the new man starts to emerge in the Christian conversion. And let me say, we're heading toward Purgatorio. So there's a reason Dantistas say this is some kind of death and resurrection passage for the pilgrim in imitation of Jesus, although not fully there halfway there, because you daren't just go on and imitate Jesus fully. Ernesto Trucchi claims that this is the moment in which the fear of hell morphs into the fear of God. The pilgrim has been afraid all along of the torments, the tortures of hell, even fainted over some of them. But at this moment, the fear of hell itself and the final fear of facing Satan is now turning toward the fear of God. And we don't mean being afraid of God here. We're using fear in a Christian theological context, which means reverence. So the terrors of hell are turning toward the reverence of God. And at this moment, you're in kind of a liminal state between the two kinds of fear, the fear that's afraid and the fear that's about reverence, that's about paying obeisance to God. What I think is that this is the moment in which Dante must find a new way to write. We have come as far as Inferno can possibly come. And so the poet and the pilgrim are at a crossroads. I have done everything I can do to get us to this point using the poetics I have used. I'm going to have to put away those poetics and find a new way of expressing myself. This strikes me as the core of the problem. That is, we have reached the 
end point of what the infernal poetics can do. And now if we're going to go on, we've reached the nadir. We've reached the bottom. We've reached the center. We've reached the end. We are going to have to figure out a way to speak anew. As a writer, that means you are both dead and alive at the same moment because you are dead to the way you were writing and you're alive to the possibilities of a new way to write, a new form, a new way to craft what you're doing. Think about James Joyce, who wrote mm, fairly, fairly, don't push me, but fairly standard stories in the collection of Dubliners, and then started to explore a new way to write in Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man, and then pushed that way to write as far as he could in Ulysses, and then it all falls apart in the Molly episode at the end, or at least it all expresses itself to its ultimate expression in the Molly episode, and then comes Finnegan's Wake. You have to be in this space in which a new thing erupts as a writer in order to continue your creativity. That's where I think we are. But Am I willing to say I've overthought it and I've overstated it? Of course. Of course it may not be completely meta and completely self-referential about poetics. I just can't help but say, hey, it is the poet talking to me. It is the poet addressing me. We're going to talk a lot more about that in the next episode of this podcast. It may, in fact, be about poetics. Before we exit this episode, let's have it again, the passage. I'll read it again. This time, no sound effects, no voices, no nothing. Let's just read the passage lines 1 through 27 of Canto 34 in my English translation because we have torn this thing up into a million little fragments and we might as well let it come back together on the page. Vexilla regis prodeunt inferni right in front of us. Look straight out there my master said, and see if you can check him out. As when a great fog exhales around you, or when our hemisphere is all night, a windmill may appear to be turning far out on the horizon, so I now seem to see just such a structure. Then, because of the wind, I took shelter behind my master, because there was no other cave to tuck inside. I was now, and I shudder to even put this into verse, at the place where the shades were fully covered up, showing through like bits of straw through a pane of glass. Some were lying flat out, some standing straight up, one with his head on top, another with his feet on top, and others bent like their faces to their toes. And when we'd finally walked far enough, it pleased my master to show me the creature who had once appeared so beautiful. He stepped aside and brought me to a stop. Behold this, he said, and behold the place where you must steal yourself with all your internal fortitude. How frozen and faint-hearted I became at that moment. Don't ask me, reader. I can't write it down because every known word would still not be enough. I didn't drop dead, but I certainly didn't remain alive. Think for yourself, if you've got enough imagination, what I'd become, both dead and alive at once. The center of the universe. We got there. Can you believe we walked there with our Pilgrim and Virgil? Can you believe that we have made it here to this spot? Now, what happens? 
First of all, we gotta find out a little bit more about Satan. Get a little closer look. After all, don't you wanna know what he looks like exactly? Don't you wanna see him? Don't you wanna know what color he is? Oh, oh. don't you wanna know exactly what he's doing here in the center of the earth? Oh, that's all to come. And then, guess what? We gotta get out. How are we going to get out of this? Here, standing in the very middle of the earth on an ice sheet. Subscribe, rate this podcast. I'm so glad you're on the walk with me. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being on this walk with me. Thank you, everyone who has written me. Thank you so much for the effort that you have put into listening to this podcast. And I will see you next time for a new interpolated episode on the podcast, Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. See you then.